Hello, and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Today on the program, we welcome portfolio manager David Talk back to the show. David and the Global Asset Allocation Team manage many funds for Canadian investors, including $80 billion in assets across more than 20 funds. David comments on our current market environment and how the team is dealing with rising inflation rates and what he sees the Bank of Canada doing for the rest of 2023. Although the Bank of Canada paused its tightening agenda from its last rate announcement, Statistics Canada's August report on inflation showed a rise to 4% year-over-year. That is up from 3.3% year-over-year back in July. David's initial reaction to rising inflation? He believes we're going the wrong way. But that's the type of landscape we're dealing with, he adds. Going through the inflation stats, we can see there's some wage growth and service-level inflation, which all contributes to the underlying price pressure. Also, gasoline is one of the biggest factors that pushed headline inflation higher. So are rising oil prices on a global basis good for the Canadian economy or to the central banks? He says it doesn't change the trajectory of spending, but changes the composition, and this is still a concern from the central bank's perspective. David says the banks want the economy to slow down, but for inflation to cool off, we need a period of economic weakness, mostly in the labor market. However, that part of the economy has yet to show any weakness at all. Companies are holding on to their labor due to the pandemic and are looking to keep labor instead of rehiring months into the future. For the GAA team, they are still leading defensively in all the funds managed. They have taken more neutral equity betas and are much closer to the benchmark on equity allocation. In terms of currency, they use an underweight to the Canadian dollar to enhance the defensiveness of the portfolio. The team is hedging underweight Canadian equities and overweight to global energy. This podcast was recorded on September 19th, 2023. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. So what did that read? I thought it was surprising, but you're the one watching these things line by line. What was your reaction? Yeah, I'm going to go deep into the archive for this one. So if you remember the John Candy movie, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Oh, it's a favorite. Okay. Mm -hmm. There was a line in there saying, you're going the wrong way as they were driving down the freeway. So that's exactly the type of landscape we're dealing with when it comes to inflation. So it, it was a little bit surprising what the market was looking at because they were expecting this kind of benign return to target. But we were a little bit cautious on that front because when we go through the inflation uh, stats, we can see that some of the wage growth, some of the service level inflation, that's still contributing to underlying price pressures. And then when you layer on top of that, just the year ago math of how inflation is calculated. So you're comparing August this year to August of last year. Uh, prices are, are higher compared to that point. So you're seeing inflation move higher. 
And also when you layer on top of that, even still, the increase we've seen in commodity prices, uh, gasoline was actually one of the big factors that pushed headline inflation higher. But even with the volatility that's inherent in headline inflation, I think the really big issue from the Bank of Canada's perspective is the fact that core inflation accelerated. And that tends to be a better forecaster for headline inflation down the road. That's what central banks are tasked to actually target. So the fact that that's moving away from their own desired level is a bit of a concern. And yeah, I think it does raise uh, some challenging conversations that the Bank of Canada will have uh, in, Octo in October. Yeah. And I mean, is there any universe in which the oil rise that we're seeing, the price of oil uh, on a global basis is, is sort of net good for the Canadian economy, helpful, and in any way helpful to the central bank? I'm kind of asking a double-barreled question, but we know we're an oil economy, maybe we're less than we were. But does that help people slow down spending? Does that help the central bank? I mean, it doesn't change the overall trajectory for spending. It definitely changes its composition. So you might be pulling back on other purchases because now it costs more to fill up your vehicle. Uh, but from the central bank's perspective, it still is a concern for them. So they certainly look through some of the volatility and headline inflation, but it can't ignore it entirely. And something also that central banks need to be very mindful of is how people expect inflation to be down the road. Right. So the extent to which gasoline prices are very visible, that can cause expectations of future inflation to increase, which is something that the Bank of Canada is already struggling with, given that inflation has been above target for quite some time. So at some point, you know, they run into that credibility issue. Yeah. And you know, this type of increase in headline inflation doesn't really help with that at all. We've talked a lot this year about lags, drags. Uh, it hasn't all kicked in yet. It's still sitting there ready to kick in. So take us to that. I mean, there's still a lot to kick in. We see this is obviously the inflation, but is it still yet to be crushed, which yeah. is what the banks want, central right. banks? Yeah, I mean, crushed is probably a little bit more evocative than they would right. hope uh, to describe it, but they definitely need to see the economy slow down. So inevitable, inevitably getting to on-target inflation does require a period of economic weakness, but mostly in the labor market. And that's really one part of the economy that has yet to show much uh, weakness at all. And I think one of the reasons for that is that we've seen you know, a fair bit of labor hoarding on the part of companies. And I think a lot of companies that were really scarred through the pandemic when it was so difficult to hire people. So as even if they start to see maybe demand for their products or services start to slow, they're going to hold on to their labor because they know that if they have to rehire in six months or a year down the road, that could be really, really challenging. So I think that's one of the reasons why the economy has displayed uh, a fair degree of persistence. And if you take a bit of a step back, I think that's really one of the surprises that a lot of people have been wrestling with since the start of this year. Because if I were to put you in a box and not show you any other economic information and only say that interest rates have gone up by basically 5%, in the last year, you would probably say, well, we should be in recession. This is probably really horrible. But in actual fact, things have been better than feared. And that labor hoarding phenomenon is part of it. Excess savings are part of it as well. But as we kind of go through the list of reasons why the economy has remained resilient, I think that's inherently a temporary phenomenon. So it could very well take a little bit longer for the impact of higher interest rates to bite. Uh, but there could be some other things going on as well. So I'm happy to jump into that as well. Yeah. Okay. Well, let, let's let's jump into that and circle back to it because there's a lot there. But just give us maybe an initial thought on positioning because we did say in the introduction, you know, duration isn't necessarily a thing you're completely stocking up on right now. Just take us through sort of uh, the ABCs of positioning right now. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. So uh, in all the funds we're managing, we're still leaning a little bit defensively. And I think that is a reflection of certainly where we sit in the cycle. Uh, but it's also important to maybe take a step uh, forward and say, how do you be defensive in this type of market? So there's really three ways that you can be defensive. So the first is that you can be underweight equities outright. But that's been challenging, certainly this year, given the fact that you know the economy hasn't slowed compared to expectations and equity markets have done quite well, actually, since the start of the year. So fighting risk premia is you know a very difficult exercise and can be very frustrating. So one of the things we've actually done with our positioning is we've taken a more neutral equity beta position. So we're much closer okay. to benchmark on our equity allocation. So that leaves us looking at other things to find a certain degree of defensiveness. And then the second would be adding a lot of duration. And as you mentioned in the intro, we've been hesitant to do so. And part of the reason for that is that inflation is still expected to be more persistent than mm -hmm. the market and central banks believe. And we certainly saw that this morning. And that means that central banks are still in play to hike further. Uh, they're certainly closer to the end than the beginning. I think we're all kind of on the same page there. But the fact that I think looking for cuts imminently is really premature just means that you can't quite trust duration at this point to provide that traditional role of defense mm -hmm. in a balanced fund. So then that brings us to the third option, which is using currency. And for those that have listened to us talk before, you know we like to use an underweight to Canadian dollars as a way to enhance the defensiveness of a portfolio. And the reason why is that the Canadian dollar is a very pro-cyclical currency. Mm -hmm. And as a result, when markets are under pressure, and if you can't trust bonds, you can typically trust the US dollar to appreciate. And we've seen that at various points over this year in those moments where the Canadian dollar is under, or when risk sentiment is under pressure, the Canadian dollar is also tends to be weaker. Uh, so many pieces not to, to take a look at. First of all, does the oil price change anything on your business? It probably doesn't. But I mean, with it going up and with Canada's prospects on that front maybe being enlivened, does it change anything on the currency front? Yeah, no, that's a really good point. Um, so when we think about the currency as a standalone, there are a lot of different factors that can determine a value of a currency. And you can look at rolling correlations between the Canadian dollar and energy prices, between the Canadian dollar and interest rate differentials, or the Canadian dollar and risk sentiment more generally. And one of the persistently positive correlations that we've noticed uh, is a higher correlation to risk sentiment. So mm -hmm. the price of oil matters, and it's maybe mattered a little bit more in the last week or two, if you wanna look at really short-term correlations. But if you pull the lens back a little bit and, and examine correlations over the last year, it's really been risk sentiment that's been the primary driver of the Canadian uh, dollar. So that's why we still have faith that as or if the economy starts to weaken and if we see markets sell off, that would typically be, again, a period where the weaker Canadian dollar reemerges. Uh, but thinking about Canada more generally, you also touch on an important point that higher energy prices is really good for a big chunk of the country. Yeah. And you know, we're cognizant of that. So as much as we're worried about Canada's domestic economy, I know we'll unpack that as well, we wanna still be somewhat favorably inclined towards commodity prices. So one of the hedges we have to being underweight Canadian equities is an overweight to global energy. Interesting. So you're still getting the commodity story. We're just trying to isolate that from some of the other challenges that the Canadian economy is likely to face. Okay, let's go into to the Canadian economy. Housing is always the one that comes to the forefront. There's lots of headlines on the political front. What do you see sort of economically the burden that Canadians are carrying in the housing department? No, it remains a challenge. Yeah. Uh, so again, if I take you out of that box of, of yeah. only interest rates going up, then 
you can imagine that buying a house today is exceedingly expensive. And for someone trying to renew their mortgage, that's also going to be a significant headwind uh, to the health of household balance sheets, but also to spending. And we've seen you know, variable rate mortgages start to adjust, so they've hit their trigger rates. So we're seeing more money needing to be dedicated towards uh, paying down those mortgage balances. But I would also argue that we haven't really seen the full impact of fixed rate mortgages. So mm -hmm. as a five-year fixed rate mortgage starts to roll through in the next couple of years. It kicks the can down a road. Exactly. A it's those borrowers that I think will uh, start to face a greater challenge. And that's going to just be a really significant headwind to uh, a household's budget. So if mortgages are eating up much more of your uh, disposable income, that leaves less money to go to other things. And then that is enough to really slow the economy. And you know, we have seen a little bit of uh, bank forbearance in terms of extending amortizations. And that's one of the reasons maybe why the economy has been more persistent than we would have expected at the start of the year. But even that's a, a temporary source of support because at some point, that mortgage needs to be renewed, and you can't just continually kick out amortizations into the infinite future. So what ultimately does the Bank of Canada need to balance right now? They've got another decision coming up. They've paused. Um, they're holding that story with, with the forbearance, and it's a temporary fix to something that's still there, and then ultimately um, needing to deal with the numbers that came out today. Yep. So yep. what do uh, they do with that? They've told us very clearly that they are in data-dependent mode. Yeah. And, okay. you know, we've seen and they this, really mean it this time. Right? They really mean they it. Really and they mean really it. meant it last time as yeah. well. And we saw this. I mean, yeah. we saw this at the start of the year where they took a pause in January uh, because their read of the data at that point was enough, and that proved not to be the case, though the data was stronger. And then they ended up having to hike again in June and July of this year. So now they've once again moved to the sidelines. And, you know, they're still feeling around to see if this is tight enough to actually drive lower inflation. And if you look at today's print in isolation, the answer is maybe not. Right. So okay. if data continues to be stronger, especially if inflation is higher than what they had forecast in their latest monetary policy report, you know, they will they will hike further. Uh, again, I, I think in baseball parlance, we're towards you know the eighth or seventh or eighth inning. Uh, I don't hopefully we're not going into extras if inflation mm -hmm. catches up, but you know, that's the risk that we've been worried about and we've been talking about. And that's why certainly we're not willing to embrace a ton of duration. But it's also one of the reasons why we still have commodity allocations in our portfolio, as well as explicit inflation protection in the form of tips and real return bonds. Because you, know, you still need to keep an eye on inflation uh, as we roll through the rest of this year. And into it's so interesting that you still have... Um... You, you have the call on the Canadian dollar, but then you want exposure to commodities, so you look more globally for that. Um, I think you may have said this, but just to clarify, so an underweight to the Canadian dollar, is that almost entirely taken with an overweight to the U.S. dollar, or, or is there sort of a global equities exposure to many different currencies? Yeah, the vast majority is relative to the U.S. dollar, okay. but we're also overweight emerging market equities and emerging market debt, so we get a little bit of EM currency exposure as a part of that. But yeah, for Simple terms, you can basically think of it relative to the to U.S. dollar. Okay. Um, there's some uh, extraordinary labor movements going on in the United States, the likes of which haven't been seen in decades. Um, it is a moment for for everyone who wants a, a wage rise, who hasn't had it yet. Many have had it so far. Kind of take us through what this moment might mean for many economies, including yeah. our own. Yeah, I think... A lot of people try to pull out parallels from the 1970s and 1980s when it comes it's to the inflation story. Yeah. It is different. I mean, one of the factors people will say as to why it's different is the fact that you don't have the same degree of unionization 
uh, today as you did back then, which means that those cost of living adjustments or that enhanced wage bargaining power was much more of a contributor to, to the increase in inflation you saw back then. But even if we look at today where we are seeing you know, the number of unions that still exist are actually successful in negotiating significant increases in in wages. And that you know is a very uh, pernicious factor to drive inflation higher because the wage inflation underpins service inflation. And as long as the consumer is still relatively strong, all things equal, consumers will uh, respond to that higher price pressure uh, by still consuming. So again, that's a slippery slope and yeah. we've pretty much exhausted the excess savings. So you might not be able to count on that in, in a year's time, but from where we sit today, that's the, that's the math that people are doing. So I think that's just one of the other reasons why in order for inflation to really sustainably come down, you need to see uh, weakness in the labor market. And that's you know, it's not, nothing the central bank wants to engineer. I mean, they don't yeah. want to have that happen. They would love for this benign decline in inflation without there being wider economic damage. But unfortunately, that's not the way the economy works. So at some point, that's the next shoe to fall that we're very focused on. And and walking that line, okay, to what extent is Canada in stagflation or or close to it? Right. Yeah, no, that's, that's one of the scary words out there. Uh, uh, I mean, I, I don't, I think that's certainly a risk. I mean, I, my, my sense is, is that as inflation remains persistent, and if we do get a certain amount of labor market weakness, growth will will come back a bit, and ultimately weaker growth should start to pull inflation lower as well. Uh, but there are definitely enough of those parallels to prior stagflationary episodes where I don't think you can fully, fully dismiss uh, that as, as sort of the, the dominant economic narrative. And where we come back from to that from a positioning perspective, again, is when we go through those prior periods of, of stagflation, the asset classes that tend to do well mm. you know, include commodities because you're getting that inflationary component, but also you know, bonds don't do well in a stagflationary environment. So that's where you need to be a little bit more appreciative of using currency. So as we've talked about, uh, a preference for the U.S. dollar in particular. I mean, is it different? I'll just push push back on that a little bit. Is it different uh, for bonds at the moment because there's been best part of 20 years where they've just been a place where you couldn't make any money. Right. And so now you get this argument. It's almost like dividends, right? Well, you get paid while you wait kind sure. of thing. Um Take us through that and why that is or isn't attractive. Yeah, no, that's that's a really good point to make. And yes, coupons uh, and yield is, is actually compelling for the first time in a long time. And you know, we've reflected that in a number of ways in, in how we were positioned. So first and foremost, we still have an overweight to short-term cash securities, just reflecting the fact that you get a little bit more certainty in yield at the very front end of the curve as opposed to making a, a stronger duration bet further out the curve. Uh, but it's also another reason why we're comfortable in holding credit as another benchmark allocation. Uh, so we have a certain amount of high yield. We've got some convertible uh, notes. We've got some EM debt, both in local currency as well as in U.S. dollars. Uh, and those allocations are done with an eye to the spread cushion that exists. So Jeff Moore's talked about this a lot recently. Mm -hmm. Adam Kramer has as well, where you know the the fact that you're actually getting compelling yields means that spreads can widen for those underlying products without necessarily seeing a total return that's negative. Uh, so that cushion is something that we're very uh, appreciative of, and that's why we want to have those allocations. Because if we're not comfortable with taking investment-grade duration at this stage, mm -hmm. we can be a little bit more comfortable working with active managers, of course, to get a little bit more spread duration in uh, the portfolio. That's fascinating. Um, when 
can take us through some of the, as you look out, longer term inflationary things. Some, some of them you've already outlined. Um, I mean, I, I don't know when we get to the point where, you know, other types of industrial revolu revolutions that we're, that we're going through sort of piecemeal, are they inflationary? Are they not inflationary? Just take us out a couple of years. We get through the punch bowl of, of what was given out during the pandemic uh, that stopped up, that bit is over. What's what's coming down the pike for us in inflation? Yeah, yeah down the road? this will be really interesting because there are really compelling narratives on both sides of the debate. Mm -hmm. uh, so you can point to AI and technology more generally yeah. as being inherently disinflationary or deflationary. I think there's certainly going to be parts of that that ring true over time. I think maybe short term, the AI hype might be a little bit overdone, but Markets will always, you know, overestimate the immediate impact, mm -hmm. but more importantly, they will underestimate the longer-term impact. Right. So, just as the internet was transformational and iPhones were transformational, I think certainly AI will prove to be the same thing over that horizon. So that's certainly a pretty compelling check mark in the disinflationary column. But if we go to the inflationary column, I think you can make an argument that you know a less globalized world, which I think will be a legacy of the pandemic, uh, is inherently more inflationary. Okay. So if the world's less efficient and supply chains are more focused on security as opposed to just the lowest price, that inherently will be an inflationary shock. So that mm -hmm. leans against the disinflation implied by technology. But another big factor that may not be in the next year or two, but probably in the next five to ten, is just the aging population. Yeah. And this is where you know reasonable people can disagree, but I think an aging population is inherently inflationary. As productive workers retire from the labor market, you're Individual budget tends to be much more, uh, much larger in, in your later stages of life. So all of that, I think, can contribute to the risk that demographics will increase inflation. And you know, central banks have talked about this a little bit as well, uh, in, in the sense of saying that they might need to target a higher neutral interest rate because of some of these factors. And part of it's inflation related, part of it's productivity related uh, around what AI might actually mean for the, for the underlying speed limit. For an mm -hmm. economy, uh, and that's a really positive story through is. time, but it's not one that is entirely consistent with going back to the record low uh, levels of interest rates that we saw pre-pandemic. So I think that's probably the, the legacy that we'll need to live with as COVID disappears into the rear view. Um, just getting back to high oil prices, uh, where oil comes from in the world, Canada has its own discussion every country has its own discussion of where energy is going where they need to source it from whether they have it themselves we obviously have it ourselves but we also source it from other places there's a whole story in there um but longer term does it help possibly with inflation that now we have a lot of resources that we i mean because other countries don't so i'm sort of looking on a relative basis could it spell good news for canada on the inflation yeah i think maybe on the margin especially the margin. if canada can be a technological leader in in, in mitigating climate change and taking other investments in that space. And, and one of the, the interesting elements about that move to sort of a more sustainable future is that you need a lot of traditional commodities to invest in the process to then become less reliant on those commodities. So right. if Canada can manage that transition effectively, where they can use what they've been blessed with thus far to invest in the technologies of the future, then that could be you know, a compelling case. Uh, but we have to also recognize that every other country is trying to basically do the, do same, the thing. same thing. So right. it's a natural question. Does Canada have the productivity enhancement available to it that can make it a successful country in that world? And when we look at productivity statistics today, Canada is abysmal right now. And this has been the case, unfortunately, yeah. for a while. 
I think we've actually probably spent more money trying to understand why we lag productivity than actually improving productivity, but what that's maybe a deal with that. So, what, okay, crack that open yeah. for us. Just, I, I was going to ask something yeah, about so, China, but just hang on a second. No, that, I mean, that to me is just a bit of navel gazing that Canadians tend to do when it comes to these issues. So when you look at the data, Canada just doesn't have that productivity record that the U.S. would. And you can go through a whole litany of potential reasons as to why Canada just fundamentally doesn't have that productivity mindset, okay. whether it's regulations, whether it's just a smaller population, a more geographically diverse population. There's lots of different things that one can speculate on, but the data is what the data is. So the fact that Canada's lag uh, makes us maybe, again, a little bit more hesitant when we think about investing in Canada versus all the other countries in the world, uh, many of which do have more success in, in, in investing in their countries and seeing a stronger level of potential growth. Okay, fascinating. So uh, are the Bank of Canada and the, and the Fed likely to further diverge their, their monetary policy? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah. So we've been watching this interest rate differential move through time. And earlier on this year, you know, we were of the view potentially that the Bank of Canada might have to hike even further because there was evidence that uh, housing really wasn't slowing down, whereas mm -hmm. there was maybe a case to say that the U.S. was cooling on the margin. Uh, I think our thinking has evolved since uh, that, that point where... You know, if Canada does start to struggle as that wall of, of higher interest rates becomes revealed, then you might instead see the Fed having to do a little bit more. Because okay. ultimately, if you look at the two economies purely through the lens of the mortgage market, you know, Canada is a little bit more rate sensitive than the U.S. Right. Uh, so maybe that's a factor that, that could uh, inform that decision. But if you wanted to take that productivity argument and extend it a bit further and compare Canadian productivity to U.S. productivity, the fact that you might have more success investing in productivity and seeing stronger potential growth in the United States would mean that all things equal, you need to see higher rates in the U.S. to handle that higher level of potential output. So if Canada just, just does not have that productive capacity or that ability to invest in productivity, then the Bank of Canada can't raise rates as much as the Fed unless they really want to decimate the economy, and that's not something that... Uh, all things equal, they're willing to do. People who are in the housing market now are going to struggle, they're going to do what they're going to do. They're already in it, so they have to make a decision one way or the other, I guess, how, how they stay in or not. From here, though, do you think the way Canadians buy homes will change? You know, you'll, you'll speak to people who say, oh, 30 years ago, my, you know, 17% of the, you know, the whole thing. But, but actually, genuinely, because do, do you think it will change? People just won't take on that that structure of debt uh, in the way they have? Yeah, that's a good question. I think when you talk to younger people and look at the cost of homes from an outright basis and, and the affordability issues that certainly exist in Toronto, but I think exist in many other cities um, across Canada as well, that will definitely change the behavior. Uh, and I think a lot of people have, have been accustomed to that very low interest rate environment for you know the better part of Certainly a decade or more, but it was you, the reality. It wasn't was it? Yeah. like that's what reality was. And there was that long, you know, thirty-year decline in interest rates more generally as the world was becoming more globalized and China was emerging stage. But now that some of that has gone away, and we might be seeing a world of higher interest rates, some of that, you know, that psychology of the, that higher interest rate period certainly might influence people who are deciding as to when to enter the market. Uh, and, you know, one of the other phenomena that we've noticed as well is that you know, there's been a lot of intergenerational wealth transfer. So yeah. parents basically giving their kids money to enter a really stretched housing market. And you know, that's you know, my, my grandmother had, had this phrase better with warm hand than cold. So to see yeah. that how, happen with your 
your family and your kids is probably a, a very noble gesture, but at the same time, you know, it's still going to be a stress, stressful experience in a world where interest rates are higher and if inflation is still high as well, that's, that's only doubly more challenging. Yeah, fascinating. Um, so does gold still work to protect against inflation? We may not have asked this question yesterday, right. but we got this print this morning. Yeah, no, certainly. So when we do a lot of math on gold uh, and a lot of the, as to what drives it, one of the things that gold has been most persistently correlated with is uh, a surprise in inflation. So if the okay. inflation comes in as expected, then yeah, gold can can do well in that environment, but not reliably so in every with every print. But if you send, tend to see a world where gold is actually stronger than what people think, or sorry, when inflation is stronger than what people think, gold will tend to perform well in that environment. So we still hold it. I think it's it's playing a role in the portfolio as a hedge against inflation. Uh, but another thing that uh, a lot of people are still worried about in the back of everyone's mind is just ongoing geopolitical struggles and challenges. Yeah. So as, as we have a large research team that spends time thinking about this among many other issues. And, and they would still say that the, the risk of, of geopolitics becoming more dangerous, at least, uh, is still there. Mm-hmm. So having uh, an allocation to gold really as, as a tail, as a hedge against the tail risk still makes a certain amount of sense. So that's an additional motivation for continuing to hold that in the portfolio. Um, what would you, let me see if we can fit two quick questions in here. Um, so just briefly on China, two weeks ago, actually we're talking about almost nothing but China. Of course, the oil price has taken over some of that narrative in the market, uh, interest rates and, and um, few international meetings and so on. But but is China going to get better soon? Are you positioned in any way to take advantage of China getting better yeah, soonish? I, I just want to echo the sentiment that everyone's been certainly talking about China. Mm-hmm. So the vast majority of our internal research meetings have been on China, mm-hmm. and we've listened to a lot of experts from around the world. And my preliminary conclusion is nobody really knows anything when it comes to yeah. understanding the the depths of of the Chinese economy, but. We do have an allocation to emerging markets, mm-hmm. uh, but we, I want to be very careful in stressing how we get that exposure, and that exposure is using an active management. So one of the advantages that we have at Fidelity is just a ton of boots on the ground all through the world that are in a, in a good position to tease out as much security level information as possible. So by accessing emerging markets using an active manager, they can look at an economy like China, where there certainly are some pretty daunting risks, but they can go through each individual company and say, is this risk appropriate for company X? And is that company something I actually want to have in the portfolio? And they can make those security by security decisions. So that's why we're comfortable continuing to have that allocation into that part of the world. Yeah, fascinating. So just a couple of minutes to, to just leave um, investors with, you know, anything you'd like to say on positioning or, or outlook. What, what would you like to leave investors with today? Yeah, I feel like I've spent most of the last half an hour yeah, depressing people and no. talking about all the things that are going wrong in the world. We and... want you to worry about it so yes. we don't have to. Well, that's true. I mean, maybe that's the message I can, I can really impart is that uh, with these funds, I mean, we're, we're certainly focused on managing the risks and the world is always uncertain. So to say it's more uncertain than usual is a bit of a misnomer, but you know, we've got a lot of the tools available to us in terms of how we invest over the, over a longer horizon using you know, a wide range of building blocks. So. As, as the world continues to unfold and as we start to see some of these events really drive market sentiment, I think we're in a, we're in a good spot to be able to handle all of that. Okay, David Talk, thank you very much for joining us here my in pleasure. the studio. It's great to see you. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. 
Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.